Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with John Evans and host Michael Lerner. John Evans, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you, Michael. John, you are a poet and visual artist. You were ordained a Buddhist priest in the Soto Zen tradition in 1983 uh, under the guidance of Bernie Glassman and Mazumi Roshi. Mm -hmm. uh, you're now a Sangha member of Everyday Zen under the guidance of Norman Fisher Roshi. And you've worked in philanthropy and public service for over 25 years. Uh, you're now the managing director of the Tamil Pious Trust in San Rafael, which supports indigenous-led organizations outside the United States in human rights, traditional knowledge, education, and indigenous rights, cultural, cultural integrity, protection of sacred lands and waters, and gender equity. You previously served as the managing director of the Tides Foundation, and as executive director of the Lannan Foundation and executive director of the New Mexico Community Foundation. So it's fair to say that you know a little bit about philanthropy at this point. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and you and I have been friends for, when did we first meet? Do you remember? I think we met in uh, 2009. When I first moved to the Bay Area, um, but I had I had admired you and the work at Commonweal for many years before, and I had been writing to Susan Braun to come try to work here before I got here in two thousand nine. And indeed, you did work here. For I a while. did. Yeah. I did. Um, and I will not disguise the fact that that you are a beloved friend who I have admired and been grateful for. Um, and as we said before we began, you actually recommended Oren Slosberg to be our executive director, which I did. he is. I did, and I was also present here the first time you ever did a spiritual biography with Orland Bishop. That's right. And I don't think there's a lack of connection between that and, and uh, Oren Slosberg. Somehow, the tradition of beautiful people in this very um, mystical place has been something I've been able to be a part of for many years now. So as we sit here today, um, what's on your heart? Mm Uh, this morning I was uh, in Point Reyes and I was talking with uh, the Sangha group that meets there on Friday mornings and we were uh, talking about um, the, the five things that um, have been big influences for me in my um, life as a uh, spiritual practitioner and as a priest. And the first four things I heard, um, I don't know, 1979 or 80, as I was um, 
studying to be a priest, and they were to be humble, um, to practice not knowing, to treat everyone as the Buddha, and to bear witness to the suffering of the world and to care for the world. Um, and in the years since, I had learned a fifth one from Leonard Cohen, uh, forget your perfect offering. Mm. Forget your... Perfect offering. Oh, there, There is a crack in everything, and that's where the light gets in. So that's what's on my heart this morning, is to forget being perfect and to just offer. So let's go over those again, mm-hmm. slowly. The first is be humble. Be humble. All right. The second is... To... Um, be in, in, I'm trying to, um, to say it in the whole way that um, my teacher once said it, but it's, um, it's, it's basically not to know. It's to Practice uh, stop being a big knower, is what I think yeah. I said this morning. Um, to be able to open to that the world isn't what you think it is, it's often so much better. <laughs> and then uh, the third one is to treat everyone as Buddha, and that includes yourself. And the fourth is to bear witness and bring your caring to everyone and everything in the world. Which is to listen and sometimes to speak and sometimes to act. Hmm. And then the one you learned from Leonard Cohen? Forget your perfect offering. Hmm. And the line that comes after that? Well, in Cohen's song, the song anthem, uh, he says, uh, there is a crack in everything. Mm -hmm. That's where the light gets in. Do you know the previous history of that line? No. Dame Edith Sitwell said of the poet William Blake, he was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came. Mm. Now, it may well go back before that. Mm. I'm not sure that Dame Edith Sitwell made it up, Mm. but I know for a fact that she said it of William Blake. In fact, I knew that long before I heard that Leonard Cohen had said it. Um, because it speaks to the heart of our work at Commonweal with uh, Wounded Healers, which was the name that Bill Moyers gave the film that he made about the Commonweal Cancer Help Program. And of course, Wounded Healers are the essence of the shamanic tradition that go back to the beginning of time, mm-hmm. that the shamans, as often women as men, speaking of gender equity and, you know, traditional societies, um, were characteristically, and the studies that Mircea Eliad and others did, were characteristically people who had had a life-threatening illness. And in the height of that illness, they realized that if they recovered, that they would devote their lives to healing others. And um, it was, um, it was uh, that recognition that opened them uh, to the possibility of, uh, of a numinous healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the Cancer Health Program, which, as you know, we've done for 
33 years and 204 retreats, it's often true that wounded healers show up. Um, so, uh, I, but I love these four things. Be humble, practice not knowing, see the Buddha in everyone, and bear witness to suffering. Uh, are those, I mean, they sound like Four Noble Truths. What are they called in Buddhism, those four practices? Do they have a name, or do, is that a list that you developed from? No, no, no. It was the, yeah. it, it's a, uh, a list that uh, many Buddhist teachers would say would, would to, say. Their, to their uh, priests during ordination. Mm. Uh, and I have heard Norman say it, actually, uh, also. Um, you know, to disappear into the robe is a, uh, is a way also of, yeah. of that being said. You know, it's so funny because I often feel that if people don't understand humility as a fundamental reality, that they honestly at some level just haven't in any way woken up yet. I mean, in other words, that humility is just kind of the ground of being of any realistic appraisal of our place in the universe that we're at once you know tinier than a fleck of sand and that we contain universes within ourselves mm -hmm. so it's that joint thing of being infinitely tiny but as you say that third point you know see the buddha and in everyone including yourself there's that infinite spaciousness mm -hmm. So the, the, be humble and then not knowing. Uh, you know, that Socrates' uh, great line that when he was told that the oracle at Delphi had said that Socrates was the wisest man in Athens, it was because he knew that he did not know. Mm -hmm. And what has fascinated me is that Socrates, this is something I need to really trace down, but there is apparently another platonic dialogue in which Socrates says he knows that he does not know, but there's one thing that he does know, and that is love. Mm -hmm. And that he is an expert on that. I need to find the reference on that. I've cited it quite a few times, but I need to find the dialogue where... Have you heard that, Mark? I have, and I don't yeah. know which dialogue it is, but mm -hmm. I, I'm reminded that um, another of my heroes is Emily Dickinson. Yeah. And she said... Very small poem. All I know of love is love is all there is. Yeah. yeah. Which again is one of the, it's not one of the four noble truths, but it is a noble truth. It is. At a very deep level. Mm -hmm. Well, I love that list. What a lovely. So that's what's on your heart. Mm -hmm. How beautiful. So you are at a quite extraordinary moment. Uh, we're speaking in November. Uh, 2019, and in January, you will uh, enter an um, experience at Tassajara, and perhaps you could tell us what that is. So not to be a big knower, but we're in November 2018. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is what goes um, with being 75 years old. It's a, a lovely thing for which I can completely forgive myself. Um, yeah, I'm going to Tassajara on January 5th, and I'll be there through April 4th, along with, I think, about 70 other people. 
uh, for the winter practice period, which they have every year, but uh, this year, for the first time in about 20 years, Norman Fisher will be conducting it. And uh, uh, there will be, during that three-month period, a time when I will be receiving uh, shiho, which is a, a Japanese word for transmission, uh, given from teacher to disciple. Now, you're being appropriately humble about this, but shiha is not something that is handed out every day by Zen teachers. Yeah. So it's a, it's a true transmission from Norman Fisher, who's a very extraordinary Zen teacher, mm-hmm. to you mm-hmm. that enables you to ordain other priests, perform ceremonies. Uh, well, all priests can perform ceremonies. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, I think I think that um, the role of the priest is always to um, continue on with the ritual uh, mm-hmm. in, in a tradition, and um, this is a continuation of that continuation. So uh, you are. So it's but it's a very significant point. It's the point at which a teacher says, "I have transmitted to you what I have found." that you are now free to pass on. And doesn't that... Mm-hmm. I know not a lot about Zen, but um, doesn't that also include a responsibility on your part to find and offer others the opportunity to continue the tradition? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a big... In a sense, it's a big responsibility, right, to raise up other he, teachers. He has said it, it's um, it's a blessing and a burden. Yeah. Um, and a blessing from the Buddha, and a burden from the the uh, the weight of the mm-hmm. suffering in the world, and finding others mm-hmm. uh, who you practice with. I did a new school conversation with Norman Fisher, who's a most extraordinary man. Um, but tell us and our listeners um, a little about Norman. Who is he, and uh, and uh, what distinguishes his practice of Zen? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm looking at my uh, my friends um, who also study with him. Uh, I'll just tell you that I met Norman uh, in 1982. Um, I was studying and practicing at the Zen community of New York in Riverdale, and we had started a Zen bakery. Many of you have heard of this bakery, uh, started by Bernie Glassman, uh, called the Grayston Bakery. And I was the sales director, um, which meant I got in a car every day and went into New York City with cakes and cookies and breads and um, all sorts of goodies um, to try and sell them to um, fancy places. And um, there was a whole work crew of uh, bakers, um, people who packaged, people who delivered. And uh, Norman and his wife Kathy came for a year uh, with their young twin boys at that time, um, taking sort of a break from out here in San Francisco. Uh, his um, Norman's mother was ill on the East Coast. They wanted to be able to see her before she died. And Norman was a bread baker. 
and um, was not someone who uh, I ever would have dreamed that I would be studying with or who would uh, be um, such an important, beloved person in my life. He is um, a very uh, learned, um, very serious uh, person, um, a, a religious scholar and deep practitioner. And poet. Uh, he's a poet, and uh, it's a kind of poetry that's a, an acquired taste for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a language poet um, kind of... Um, it's a it's a different kind of poetry than I write or that other people I know write, and it's uh, very much in tune with his Zen practice. And he says, in fact, that it has everything to do with who he is uh, as a Zen practitioner. Uh, I would say Norman's one of the most generous beings I've ever met. Um, he's um, he's a great listener and um, uh, is there whenever people ask for him to be there, which is part of the transmission as far as I'm uh, understanding it, is that you will uh, be present and be there when people ask. You were there when I did the spiritual biography with him at his house. uh, I was. And I had done a lot of preparation for it, but afterward I felt, you know, I just barely scratched the surface. I, I just felt like, I, you know, I, I didn't feel as if I had been able to really go deep enough. It was an interesting experience. Well, you used the term before, worlds within worlds inside yeah. all of us. And I think with Norman, what any of us feel in his presence is both a sort of regular guyness on mm-hmm. the one hand, but really, it's worlds within worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, so He many... was the head of San Francisco's Zen Center. He was. He was yeah. the abbot there. He came, at, uh, came in at the end of a very tumultuous period of time. Yeah, he said that actually he feels that everybody else, you know, looked down the line when they were looking for who was the next abbot, and he was the last guy in line. That's what I remember that story. <laughs> yeah. But he did a beautiful job. He did a beautiful yeah. job. Yeah. And was part of the healing of mm. that community. Mm. 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 And you lead a Sangha in Point Reyes called the Heart of Compassion Sangha that meets Fridays at 8 a.m. at the Presbyterian Church. That's correct. 20 to 30 people show up. That's a Mas lot, of, menos, yes. lot of people mm-hmm. at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. on a Friday. Mm-hmm. You told me that recently uh, you made a donation to West Marin Community Services that all the donations go to charity and you donated sleeping bags, mats, tarps, underwear, socks, and gloves for all the people who are living hard in West Marin. Yes, people who are living in their cars and yeah. people who are in the woods. Yeah, it was this morning and it's thanks to the Sangha members, some of whom are here. Um, we got to meet with the incredible director of West Marin Community Services. And uh, uh, I anticipate that it's going to be a relationship that we continue to deepen uh, with that organization. 
You know, I think a lot about those people. Um, you know, we all think about different things, but um, I, I have a proclivity to think about the people who um, live in cars and trucks and campers and and the people, you know, there's a, when I go into Berkeley and I take the turnoff yeah. um, for Gilman. Gilman. There's a place you go left and there's usually somebody waiting for handouts there. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bunch of people who used to live under the bridge there. But then the powers that be cleaned it all out and put up fences and stuff like that. But, you know, in West Marin, which is one of the wealthiest counties in the country, and people think, oh, everybody is wealthy out there. And, um, and actually, the Brighton Avenue is typically lined with mm -hmm. cars and mm -hmm. vans. And I don't remember, did Bolinas pass or fail the thing about bouncing everybody off Brighton Avenue? What? Failed. It failed, so it, it didn't pass. It had to be two-thirds. Okay. Yeah, there was an effort... Uh, you know, which I understand, uh, particularly of landowners along Brighton Avenue. They didn't like all the people in, in cars and trucks. But with what's coming down in the world right now, mm. I so deeply believe there are going to be more and more and more people living out of cars mm. and trucks and RV vans. Mm -hmm. And where are they going to park, you know? And they're going to be chased from one place to another as people get together to chase them away from wherever else it is. Mm -hmm. So this is a, actually a, a big thing for me. It's a whole part of our world that most of us don't see. Yeah. I'll tell you something really crazy. Mm -hmm. I have researched RV parks from Northern California through Alaska because I have a fantasy that as the middle of the country becomes uninhabitable because of the heat and everything else, where are people going to go? They're going to head for the coast. But there are going to be people who can't afford to buy houses. So what are they going to come in? They're going to come in their vans. It's like going to be the Okies, mm -hmm. uh, you know. They're going to come in their trucks and vans, and they're going to be trying to find a place to park, right? So what do we need? We need campgrounds and RV parks that are actually designed for people who are looking for community, and with what's coming down, we want solar power and places to do garden beds and set up for community and designed to create community. So anyway, this is, you know, one of my crazy images, but, but I really believe that we are seeing the future in the people that your sangha is creating sleeping bags and mats and gloves and socks for. You know, what do people need? They need bathrooms. They need a place to take a shower. They need food. They need access to health care, you know? And, and they want to be around other people. They don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's certain... You could design a set of design criteria for where people will live. I think that's actually uh, in practice already uh, with West Marine Community Services to a certain extent. Um, but, yeah, Michael, I mean, we're, we're talking about um, 
masses of people on the move around the globe. Uh, and in our country, um, we see it mostly in cities. We don't know that the people are in their tent in the woods uh, the same way we see them under the bridges and, and uh, at the stoplights in Marin and, and San Francisco. But all over the world, um, with forced migration, uh, with um, people fleeing from uh, horrendous governments and, and uh, threats of being killed, um, corporate greed taking over, uh, uh, resources like mines and, and forests and, and building hydro dams, um, many, many, many people are on the move without shelter, without a sense of home, without security. And um, if we can turn our consciousness toward that bearing witness um, um, kind of practice, I think that we are called to do something. And sometimes it's offering money, and sometimes it's offering uh, just the listening, and sometimes, obviously, action. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of... I've been very deeply influenced by Richard Rohr and the Center for Action and Contemplation, which was an earlier place I was able to study in my life. And the sort of rebel rousers, I think, have always been very attractive to me in terms of spiritual direction. There are lots of good ones. Yes, Richard Rohr, for those of you who don't know, is an extraordinary uh, Catholic uh, uh, contemplative um, who has an incredible website. And I read his little thing every single morning mm -hmm. uh, from the Center for C Contemplation and Action. Mm -hmm. he, has, he just announced he had cancer again mm -hmm. and that he thought the end of life might be coming closer for him. Mm -hmm. um, he is like Brother David Steindl-Rast and, you know, uh, like a handful of others of the great uh, Catholic uh, contemplative uh, activists. Um, truly extraordinary. Um, coming back to your observation about people being on the move, so you do this deeply. I mean, this is not just an abstraction for you. First of all, at the Tamil Trust, you work with these indigenous uh, communities that are trying to protect sacred lands and waters and knowledge and so forth. But also you're involved in other respects in refugee work. Um, and so here's, here's a, a deep philosophical question I want to ask you. Um, and it truly is a deep question. What's happening with climate change aside from all the violence and everything else, <coughs> is that the temperatures around the world are going up. And around the equator, it's going to become more and more difficult to live, you know, and desertification is spreading and all that. So as both violence and corporate takeovers <coughs> and climate change and, you know, war and everything else does this, you could say a large part of the global south is on the move toward the global north. And the global north is building walls. That's the bigger picture. The global south is on the move out of Africa, 
uh, toward Europe, out of Latin America, uh, toward the United States, and the global north, not just our president. The global north is building walls. So, the, the, and I don't expect you to be able to answer this, but I'm just posing, in a sense, for all of us, most progressives are very compassionate people. They want to welcome refugees with open arms. Many conservatives, I'll take David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, as a reasonable example, ask what the limits of that compassion would be. In other words, I bet that if we asked the people in this room, I bet 90% of whom at least are progressive, that they would want to welcome refugees. But then I would, the follow-up question for me would be, should we have open borders? Should everybody in the world who wants to come to the United States be able to come? And so the deep questions for me is, and maybe you can reflect on this, what is the relationship between compassion for the billions of human beings who are going to want to find their way to refuge? You're listening to a TNS conversation with John Evans and host Michael Lerner. And the sense of people who live in northern countries, even very progressive, compassionate people, yes, we want to be compassionate, yes, we want to welcome people, but are there limits? And I'm just curious, I mean, you're a very thoughtful person. How do you sit in the face of all the suffering with the question of whether our ethical obligation, spiritually, is to welcome everyone, or whether there are limits to what we can do. That's just an honest question without, I don't know the answer, but I'm curious how you would hold a question like that. I'm looking for help. Um, so I'm, I'm very aware that as, as you're exploring here that you know, your, your recent inquiry has been um, in this Omega work that you've been involved in, uh, which is, is, uh, is very interesting to me. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it is of interest to me in terms of the way you may feel the world is turning. Yeah. Um, and um, and a sense of, of um, ending um, rather than a sense of beginning uh, or a sense of um, uh, opening. And uh, my experience in my life has been around uh, there being no limit to the help that's available. Mm-hmm. And what I have um, been inspired by are people who also see no end to opening and giving and being available. Mm-hmm. 
knowing that we are human beings. Mm -hmm. And that, as somebody said um, uh, to me um, when I said something about, you know, having made many mistakes that in my life that, um, you know, yes, being human is, is uh, very much a part of those instructions, you know, to really be human and, and to know that there are going to be moments where you fall asleep on your feet. Mm-hmm. But that you have much more to offer. And um, as, a, as a collective, that the uh, power of, um, yes, we can, is um, an awesome, unlimited power, mm-hmm. as far as I can see. I see that a lot in the indigenous people who I work with, mm. who have completely um, um, triumphed in some ways over the move to exterminate them off the face of the earth. And they have done it um, tenaciously through their identity as, as a collective, not as individuals. Mm. So when I think of, for example, the Haida people, who um, Mark and I both have been inspired by. It's Mark Dowie, who wrote a book on the Haida Gawai, who's here. Yes. Right. Um, the, the way of, of, um, of life uh, on Haida Gawai has uh, a lot to do with um, drawing on the wisdom uh, of the ancestors, the deep uh, faith in um, uh, in worlds uh, invisible to us and um, in helpers uh, that are there, um, people and um, practices who have been before them for many years, uh, able to, to sustain life and flourish, actually. They are mighty people. I don't think of them at all as... Um, Uh, aloof. Uh, They are actually kind of right in your face kind of people if you actually get to know them in any sort of way. But um, they're they're, uh, uh, people who would not know uh, in a sense how to limit their caring for the world. So um, I've been I've been of course, troubled by uh, all the ways in which we see the the walls and the and the borders and the blockades uh, in our own hearts as well as in the practice in the world. Um, but I I have complete faith that that uh, is not uh, the bigger power of the world. Well, that's beautifully said. Uh, let me just fill out some references. You mentioned our work with Omega, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which is a nascent funder, thought partner, collaborative on the global challenge of the 25 different vectors that some people are leading, believe are leading towards civilizational collapse. Um, and um, we have a project at Commonweal called the, the Resilience Project, which is doing the same kind of work. Um, And so let me just start by saying where I agree with you. I agree with you, actually, that 
the opportunities to be of service are going to be even greater. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. And part of our work, Oren and I were just in a board retreat uh, at Commonweal, and we just um, want forever to be exploring how we can be of the greatest use because the suffering will increase mm -hmm. and the opportunities. Uh, and I actually am one who does not believe this is the end at all. I think humanity is a, a weedy species mm -hmm. that we have been able to survive from near the North Pole to near the South Pole and that we will undoubtedly or very likely be able to continue to survive. The question is, who's going to survive and under what conditions and what will it be like? And will we become transhuman or will we remain human in some way? We, will we become cyborgs? I mean, the first genetically etiquette, uh, you know, designed twins are being born in China. Um, and so they're now beginning to do germline genetic transformation. And so, uh, and, you know, uh, so uh, when... Uh, I remember years ago when we started the Commonwealth Sustainable Futures Project and uh, one of the authors of the Brundtland Commission report, James McNeil, came to Commonwealth and he said something I've never forgotten. He said that there were fewer, four possible futures, business as usual, descent into chaos, achieving sustainability, or becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. And my observation was that it isn't actually a choice of those four, that it's all four in some combination, to some degree business as usual, to some degree descent into chaos, to some degree becoming sustainable, and absolutely becoming artificial people on an artificial planet. So I don't think it's an end. I think what we're struggling over is to what degree the arc of that set of possibilities moves in directions that as human beings, we would wish to have our children and grandchildren born into. Uh, so when I pose a question, you know, William James has a great distinction between tough-minded and tender-minded people. And in general, progressives tend to be tender-minded, you know, quote, bleeding heart liberals. And conservatives tend to be tough-minded. And from my point of view, you need both perspectives because, you know, Gandhi was actually very tough-minded. You know, here he was enormously compassionate, but when asked why he knew what the British were going to do next, he said, I'm, it's because I'm that kind of scoundrel, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that capacity to both see where the vectors are headed in order to be able to respond compassionately. So that's why I, I, I love your answer, but um, I do not personally believe that the opportunities for compassion are a sufficient response. And I don't think it's the only response you're taking. You're organizing indigenous peoples around the world, which is a tough-minded thing to do. Well, but I, I think that the circle back to, you know, not knowing mm -hmm. and um, to the quote that um, was used for this particular conversation about leaving home. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm convinced that we have to leave behind the habitual ways we have been thinking of any of this mm -hmm. that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that there is actually uh, 
a kind of much deeper wisdom and activity available that's, I'm going to say, interspecies and, and um, uh, intercommunication mm. in ways that I, I, mean, I hardly even know what I'm talking about, except that I think we're getting all sorts of cues, um, big signals uh, in our relationships uh, with uh, plants and um, with uh, the elements, uh, with, um, with the ways in which uh, uh, science is, um, is pushing and, and opening and um, um, challenging us these days. Uh, I don't think we know at all and that we are um, pretty distracted right now with what's going on. Uh, we're, we're living in a time when um, at this moment, um, I was looking on your bookcase as I came into your office and I looked at this book, Spine Said Chaos, on it. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, that book's out of my reach and I don't really want to go up there to, to read it, actually, because <laughs> it's right here, right in my, um, my sort of, you know, front um, and center place. Uh, and at the same time, there is uh, a lot of energy in my own life and in the world around me, I think, um, being used to, um, uh, to say and act in a way that feels uh, uh, not chaotic, not, not uh, torn asunder. Uh, there are people saying, I'm waking up right now in this. This is important for me to see how chaotic and crazy this is. And I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm going to be a part of something deeper and loving and, and kind. And to be real with each other and not try and hide what hurts. Mm -hmm. Well, that's beautiful. And as you know, I'm deeply agree with all of that. We've been part of that work together for a long time. So, um, Did the Buddha actually say that thing about how um, uh, people with opinions just went around the world disturbing the peace? That, or is that, I don't know. There's a whole uh, website, you know, I, the things the Buddha line. didn't say. Yeah. You know that? That. Yeah. 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 Right. So... Um, where were you born and where did you grow up? <laughs> where were you born? Well, I was going to say earlier to you that um, when you were talking about wounded healers and, um, and what happens with uh, the encounters with illness, that uh, I was born uh, to uh, a mother who spent um, 37 years uh, in bed and um, though I saw her walk a few times in my life, um, it was not the way she was. For what, what was her condition? She had very bad rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. um, she then got Parkinson's, and uh, she was what we called in those days manic depressive. Um, quite depressed at some times, but... Uh, uh, famously manic at other times. Mm. Um, I 
think I learned a lot. Where did you grow up? Uh, Westport, Connecticut. I was born, mm. uh, and um, my my parents uh, were uh, not very young when they married each other, so I was their only child. Um, <laughs> my father said they moved to when they first moved. Uh, after marrying, they moved to a golf course apartment um, in Westport. And so he would say to people, she was conceived on a golf course. <laughs> and people would go, hmm. <laughs> um, the truth was, I was not conceived on a golf course. But um, I think I was their only chance. Uh, what of, was his uh, work? My father was a billboard salesman. Mm -hmm. He sold advertising um, on those big billboards in Times Square. Mm. And he always wanted me to go into the sign business. Mm. And, and you did. Well, well, I don't know. I think so. I think so. You saw a sign. <laughs> uh, well, I worked in television uh, for many years. Uh, and when I um, saw that that was really the world of samsara for me, uh, I asked for a leave of absence and... Uh, you worked in documentaries? I worked in news, television news, the ABC News. And I went to my boss, Rune Arlich, and um, said that I wanted to take a leave of absence. I wanted to go live in a Zen center. And he said, you're having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> um, and uh, I've said before, you know, that I thought it was really a nervous breakthrough because mm. I was... Um, smoking three packs of cigarettes a day, and I, I was uh, addicted to diet pills. Uh, I was um, very sure that these very serious uh, uh, wars that we were going to cover were, were uh, places for uh, debauchery based on you know, mm -hmm. the journalists not going out of the hotels, staying there, drinking, and um, getting into trouble together. And I thought, I'm going to go right down the tubes with all of this. I can't do it. So I left TV. And when I did, my father was sure that I had stopped work altogether because mm -hmm. my name didn't go up you know, on the end of the credits anymore. And he said, now you're coming into the sign business. <laughs> so, no, 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 I'm going into a Zen monastery. Which Zen monastery did you go to? Well, it was the Zen community of New York, which was a monastic practice at that time. Is that where you met Bernie Glass? Well, that, Bernie was my teacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how old were you then? I was uh, 28. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And my memory is that the bakery was no piece of cake. So. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. it was really hard. It was really hard. Yeah. We, we burned out all the Zen students, mm -hmm. burned them out twice, mm -hmm. in two different um, whole sort of cohorts. They were all thought this was crazy. And, uh, and Norman left. Yeah, mm -hmm. Norman came back here. He didn't stay. Mm -hmm. um, and then we started to train homeless people uh, to be the bakers. And that was um, uh, quite a challenge. So by that time, I was no longer just selling it. I was baking it and delivering it as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. So did you uh, 
go from there to the New Mexico Community Foundation? No, I did not. No. How did you get? I, I went from there uh -huh. um, back to finish college at age 35. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my professors there who I had had previously, um, before I dropped out to go into the Zen Center, um, I had been working at ABC News and going to college um, mm -hmm. spare time. And uh, he saw me come back to school to get the final um, bachelor's degree. And he said, you're not going back to that monastery. I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do exactly. And he was very helpful and helped me go to graduate school at Johns Hopkins, uh, where I was accepted into the writing program. And on the um, chance that I could start writing something I'd wanted to do since I was a little girl um, to do it in a regular professional way. I went there, but on my way there, I went to a, a retreat with Stephen Levine mm. uh, on death and dying. And I met the first person I ever knew uh, with AIDS. It was That's 1985. Right. Yeah. So I began to write when I got to Johns Hopkins about AIDS and the AIDS mm. epidemic. And um, fell in love and got married and um, dove into the AIDS epidemic with a new husband. Hmm. And then moved to New Mexico. And how long you worked in New York with HIV? No, we worked in Baltimore with oh. HIV and then went to New Mexico and started to work. I, was, I worked for 10 years in HIV. In, in, in Baltimore and? Baltimore and then New Mexico. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Baltimore, it was, an, it was a disease of the ghetto. It was a disease of uh, women, uh, black women, many of whom were either sleeping with men who uh, were hustlers or IV drug users. Um, they had no idea what it was they had, actually. It was the beginning of the epidemic. And then there were also migrant workers in those days uh, who were working their way up the East Coast, and the HIV epidemic was uh, full-blown there in the mid-'80s. And they didn't know what they had either. So did your Zen spiritual practice in any way accompany you through these later yeah. phases? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the early um, teaching about um, not turning away from what was painful and uh, not, um, you know, the, the beginnings with my own parents, uh, my mother's illness, my father uh, had grandma epilepsy. Mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, in a terrible marriage with each other. Uh, there was lots of... Um, drinking and drugging and, and violence. And I saw that there was also a kind of, uh, again, help available and a lot of love available. And that then became a through line, I think, for me in Zen practice as well, because in my own case, um, I received so much help. Uh, I was really a disaster when I started. And I was uh, I was hiding it. I was trying, um, and uh, to be able to not hide and to be able to come out 
was really a big uh, part of that. What was the inner source of strength in you that enabled you before you discovered Zen to survive your parents' marriage and survive all the changes you went through? What was it in you that enabled you to get through the hard stuff? Imagination. Imagination? Uh, imagining what? Well, I would sit at the end of the driveway um, and tell myself stories. Uh-huh. Uh, and throw little rocks into the trees. Um, and the trees became characters in the stories that I would tell myself. And uh, they were often... I don't know where this came from, but I mean, they were often like I was in Africa and there were um, uh, fantastic elephants and lions and they were my friends and, and we were in the midst of some sort of um, uh, terrible illness and calamity um, all around us. And there was a, it must have been like an Albert Schweitzer fantasy that I had in some way or a Mother Teresa early thing. I don't know. I just saw this as a, a way of um, being with myself and also being um, with uh, other beings, animals and trees and uh, the natural world. When you were a little person, <laughs> what is the first thing that you remember wanting to be when you were grown up? I wanted to be a, um, I, what do you call them, the, uh, the people who um, tend to the elephants. An the, elephant tender. In the circus, yeah. I wanted to live in yeah. those places behind the big top. Yeah. Uh, oh, behind the big tent. Yes. So these would be circus elephants that yeah. you would tend to. Yeah. Can you remember one of the stories that you told yourself when you sat at the edge of the lake and threw pebbles? And, and well, I, I have I actually have the first story I ever wrote. Uh huh. Um, I was five, mm -hmm. and um, I typed it on my mother's typewriter, uh, and it uh, it was a story of two little girls, um, and it was really me and my best friend, and that we rode our bicycles. Um, by a house that was on fire and we went in and rescued a baby and wrapped her in wet rags and brought her home and she would she was my little sister after that so you kept the Zen you discovered so Zen in a sense saved your life oh absolutely yeah, mm -hmm. yeah and, and what saved my life about it was that I said to Bernie Glassman how do I get out of this Mm -hmm. He said, you go right into the middle of it. Mm -hmm. A wise and ancient teaching. Yes. <laughs> and that, what you were 20... I was 28 when 28. I went there. And I was almost 35 when I left. What, do you remember a moment in that seven-year period that kind of encapsulates it vividly for you? Oh, God. Mm. 
Well, um, I do remember uh, the. Um, I have I have told others this story, but the there was a little old Roshi who came to visit us from Japan, Nishiwaki Roshi, and um, he was the he was the head of the big sort of mothership uh, Soto. Um, headquarters in Japan and I was assigned to drive him around in the car and take him to see all these other Zen centers where the the teachers had to put on a you know a big sort of do to have him there and uh, after we'd been to four or five of these places and he was very excited because he said you know Zen is alive in America the the question in the uh, old country is dead. There's, there's no, there's no um, excitement there anymore. Um, we were driving along one day, and we were pretty familiar with each other at this point. And he asked me where I was in my koan practice. And koan practice, people know, is a way of, of um, uh, mostly Rinzai practice of uh, impossibly um, unsolvable questions that you're asked uh, as a Zen student. And there are three or four thousand of them um, that people can do in a systematic way and it's supposed to help free your um, mind from knowing. So this man had such a freedom, a delight in being alive about him um, so he said, you know, where are you in your koan practice? And I was like, mm, well, I'm not too good at this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at the beginning, and I, I know I'm never going to finish in my lifetime. Uh, and then I thought, well, I can dare myself to ask him this. Um, maybe we'll see what they, he'll share with me. I said, can you tell me? the last koan, because I know I'll never get there. And he said, I won't tell you the last um, koan, last koan, but I will tell you the answer to the last koan. <laughs> and David, you think I said one thing, and I think I said another, but I'm just going to say that um, I thought, hot damn, you know, this is great. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll never get there otherwise. And um, he said the last answer to the koan uh, is love. Mm. Mm. Is is that what you heard me say, David? No, but I'm sure you have. I'm sure you. What did you hear? What did you hear, David? I, I heard that the answer to all the koans yes. is love. Oh. Yeah. Well, what's the matter? It, we, we can go with same, either of those. Same, same. Yeah. yeah. Um, it. it did assure me, you know, that um, that this was the practice that for me um, I wasn't going to um, ever get to the end of, mm -hmm. and that uh, love was, in fact, the answer to all of it. But I'd never heard anyone use that word in our Zen practice at that point. It was, you know, in the early 80s. When I started to practice with Norman in 2009, one of the first set, uh, talks he gave, he mentioned something about love. I was like, wow, look at that, yeah. And I said to him in 
one of my first meetings. I'm so grateful to you. You're talking about love. And those who know Norman, you know, uh, took me long enough. You know, that it was not something that we talked about and that it was a, uh, a real opening in the American um, understanding and practice of Zen to be talking about love. You're listening to a TNS conversation with John Evans and host Michael Lerner. Actually, it's so interesting because the next question that I was going to ask you before you said that was, um, what have you learned from love in this lifetime? <laughs> now, there's a small question for you. <laughs> well, it's easy to love when people are lovable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy to love when the atmosphere is there and the there's great comfort uh, and the most profound experiences I've had have been around when I thought I couldn't love anymore or when I was so sure that something that had happened that was I couldn't forgive and suddenly boom, something springs open and it's, it's possible to go beyond that Endless reservoir, always available. That's what I've learned. So, I've learned more from love than from anything else in my life. And I've talked about it. Um, You're a love bug. I'm a love bug. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a love bug too, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, two love bugs. Mm-hmm. Um but clearly there are different kinds of love, right? So, there's in love, right? That ecstatic state that some of us have experienced in this lifetime, right? There's um, love of a brother or sister or a spiritual brother or sister or parent or a child. There's love of our work, there's love of the natural world, uh, there's love of the Dharma, you know, the truth, uh, this divine love. Um, How do you hold, when you say, how do you hold these different forms of love in any kind of... um, Understanding what is the story you tell yourself about the relationship between these different kinds of love? Well, you're the one who's talking about different kinds of love. Excuse me? I said you're the one who's talking about different kinds of love. Yes, I am. Yeah. You say it's all the same? So, well, well I, I wouldn't say it that way, that it's all the same, but I wouldn't parse it oh, okay. in some way. I would just... Um, I would just say that the different expressions of the love um, continue to astound me Mm -hmm. and that the older I get uh, the more I appreciate that the opportunity to be known and to be intimate 
uh, is um, is a kind of love that I thought perhaps as a younger person was only available and and meant for um, certain beings and certain experiences in my life. No more. I really mm. feel it uh, much more now in uh, in uh, all kinds of experiences that mm. I have. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, since you started studying again and you renewed your vows in 2009 with Norman Fisher, the, your teacher who has this beautiful uh, project, Zen project called Everyday Zen, um, it's now been, uh, it's now almost 10 years, and now you're going to take this... Um, uh, Shiha, full Shiha. trans Shiha? Shiha. Shiha. Mm -hmm. uh, full transmission from him uh, at, at Tassahara in January of 2019. Um, can you say something about what that 10 years of intense practice and studying with Norman Fisher has been for you? What? How have you moved in your spiritual biography mm. over the last 10 years of this work? Um, Norman is um, a teacher of ethics, mm -hmm. and I have always felt um, that his... Um, his straightforward integrity is something that um, inspires me to uh, try and bring that forward mm -hmm. in my own life. Uh, he, he once told us uh, that one of the things he likes to do when he goes to public washrooms, is to leave them nicer than when he mm -hmm. went in. And it's been a big teaching for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I love to do that now, too. And I think of him each time I do that. Um, it just encapsulates for me what it is to be able to be around someone with a, a kind of sensitivity to others, and no one thanks him for those kinds of, you know, actions. And to be that person in the world who can um, disappear without needing applause and without mm. needing a lot of attention. What you were saying earlier in the conversation, you know, we live in this world of great celebrity mm -hmm. and of people needing to be famous. Um, and how amazing it is when people don't want to be that. Uh, there is uh, so much more, so much more um, to give when we're not worried about uh, our reputation and how famous we are. So for Norman, though he is so well-known, there is something so humble and so sort of right as rain about him um, that I just 
uh, feel lucky to be his student. I want to add something in terms yeah. of practice um, with everyday Zen. Uh, the appreciation for Sangha. Yeah. Uh, which... Sangha meaning community. Community, yes. Community of people who I practice with, my, mm-hmm. my teachers, my friends, my, my beloveds who I get a chance to be around and mm-hmm. um, who, uh, who share and, and give of themselves again, often without being... Um, seen and called out for it. Your family of choice. <laughs> my, right? I, We're given our I, families of birth and then mm. we create our families of choice. Yeah. Well, and how fortunate I feel to be in that family. Yeah. Um, people who also chose mm-hmm. each other. So you've talked about Norman's practice, you've talked about your gratitude for the Sangha, the community. But my real question was what has happened to you internally? as a result of this? Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's kept me, um, um, I want to say going in the in the right direction for the purpose um, of my life, instead of getting detoured. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm kind of a fun hog. I really like to play, and I could have been diverted in big ways. I think maybe I'm being too hard on myself. I don't know, but I, I. Uh, You're approaching forty years of practice. I, I am at 40 years of yeah, practice. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's something. Well, I was pretty messed up too, Michael, and I yeah. felt like it was something that took a dramatic, radical effort on my part to mm-hmm. sort of turn the wheel um, mm-hmm. or be turned by the wheel. Um, I had obviously a lot of health also. You asked, you know, how did I get through the early years? Yeah, I was born with some kind of um, deep health. But I had a lot of bad habits, and I really thought I was a wretch. So turning that around um, and understanding that, um, you know, that Quaker saying, I have it hanging on my refrigerator, ask simply to be used. I've always I love that. I didn't know that line. Yeah. I adore that. (laughs) Ask simply to to be be used. used. Yeah. I just love it. You know the Naomi Shihab Nye poem, Famous? I do. That I don't, can't quote it by heart, but the last line's about, you know, I want to be like um, a pulley or a buttonhole, not because they are ever famous, but because they never forgot what they were good for. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) And for me... Mm-hmm. To be useful is mm-hmm. is the center of the whole thing. So I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Ask only to be useful. Isn't that ask be- only to be used. Ask used. simply to be used. Oh, I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, I mean, was there something more representative of Quakerism than that? No, I don't know. Yeah. How long did it take you 
if you felt like you were a wretch when you were 28 and went into Zen practice, how long did it take you to develop another perspective? I mean, we're all wretches, but how long did it take you to discover that you weren't only a wretch? Only a wretch? Yeah. I think I knew that going in there. Oh, you did? Yeah, I think I yeah. did. But I, I felt that it was... Uh, Pretty dicey. I was mm -hmm. on the on the edge. Um, I was, you know, working in television, and and everybody there was pretty caught up in what do you look like, how much money do you make, um, what uh, what fancy assignment did you have, and um, and there were very few women, uh, so I was very um, I was an a token woman to begin with, and a lot of pressure in terms of all those mm -hmm. kinds of questions on me. And I have been a, in many ways a woman in men's world often in my life, yeah. So that's been a big part of my evolution, uh, especially, I think, in this last 10 years. Mm. Uh, the, the Me Too movement has stirred a lot of old Memories. Uh, um, I was very lucky. I did not get raped and I didn't get uh, groped. But I have been in some very dangerous situations and I have been humiliated and um, silenced and passed over. I remember, I'm not going to cite the example, but you told me once about a, you know, person we both know who... Uh, just didn't see you as a human being, um, which astonished me. Um, so these things aren't just uh, past events, you know, they go on. Um, um, so. Um, but it's thrilling to be part of the consciousness yes. that is opening now yeah. for women and men. Yeah. And the chance for the healing of, of gender. And it's gone global in such an amazing way. It's not just a U.S.-EU phenomenon. No. I mean, you know, you see no. it in Asia. I don't know if you see it in Africa. Maybe so. But yes. You see it in, in Africa? Yeah, I just, I'll tell you one, one mm -hmm. example. Um, so the women I work with in Kenya who are pastoralist women, they mm. live with their animals and they go mm. on migration trails. Um, the, the trails are often three to five years long. And the little girls uh, were often considered by uh, the patriarchy to be extra. And they would sometimes be um, tied to um, uh, some immovable, there aren't many trees in the, that area, but something where they couldn't leave and they would they would die from exposure and starvation or, uh, uh, believe it or not, a father would arrange for the little girl to be raped on the uh, path and then she would be shunned and he could leave her uh, and not support her any longer. So the women, um, this is a, an area uh, of the world where women are 100% uh, part of the female genital mutilation uh, practice, which is a complicated issue for them. Uh, 
they are trying to change that in their way, but they are particularly uh, clear that they have to save their daughters first before they can even think about themselves. So they have um, begun a practice that's now quite um, well-established over the last three or four years. They build these schools that look sort of like little thatch-roofed, almost like igloos, um, uh, that have a flat uh, floor of um, sticks of wood uh, and then leaves that cover the roof. Uh, and they take four women at a time, each with a, a, a corner of the uh, wood posts on their shoulders so that they can go along the migration trail. And the little girls are up uh, in this little schoolroom. That's what they call it. It's a traveling schoolroom. And they've gotten so cool about it now, they have a greenhouse, a solar greenhouse, mm. on top of these things. And they're growing vegetables for the first time, which is kind of unheard of in northern Kenya. Um, there's nothing really green there. And so they're, they're teaching the girls. They're protecting them. Um, they're doing these solar greenhouses, and they're bringing a kind of spirit and resilience into the life of women. Mm. It's just fantastic. Say more about the work with Tamil Pius Trust, because it's an extraordinary piece of work, and, and you're also um, part of a uh, wonderful philanthropic collaborative on uh, protecting um, uh, truth speakers uh, who are getting shot all over the world. Environmental defenders. Yeah, environmental defenders. But yeah. say a little about the Tamil Pius Trust and the environmental defenders' work. Well, um, Tamil Pius Trust is a 20-year philanthropic trust. Uh, we're in year seven. I've been with it since it was launched. And we, um, the donors, uh, have designated funds for the next, now, 13 more years uh, to indigenous-led organizations around the world. Uh, they're large grants, uh, general support grants, not project grants, so that people can stabilize their organization. And um, they're, they're being given to help protect sacred lands and waters, traditional knowledge systems, um, youth and women leadership um, changes, and indigenous rights. Where have you made grants? Uh, we, we made grants in... Uh, Nicaragua, Honduras, Mexico, um, throughout the Arctic, uh, Canada, and uh, um, also in Finland, Norway, Sweden, and Russia, the Sami people there, um, Mongolia, um, mm -mm, um, New Zealand, uh, Peru, um, Bolivia, Chile. Uh, to, and you've traveled to all these places. I have traveled to a lot of them, yeah. yes. Yeah. And when you said large grants, what is the magnitude and what is the time frame? Well, so these are long-term grants. Mm -hmm. um, so far, most of our uh, grant partners have been getting the grants for seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, they range between three and $500,000 a year. A year? 
a year. Mm -hmm. That's substantial. Yeah, it is substantial. So between three and five hundred thousand a year for seven years. For seven years. Yeah, that's yeah. substantial. And so, yes, mm -hmm. what has your experience been of the impact of the grants? on these indigenous organizations. Because you and I have been in philanthropy long enough to know that it's not entirely obvious that grants of those magnitudes to indigenous communities will be of benefit, necessarily. I mean, in other words, we certainly know there are famous cases where foundations have flooded a field with money and the impact has been destructive rather than constructive. So I'm just curious, as you thought about giving these grants to indigenous communities, did you have to think about how they would be utilized, what the impact would be, and what you Absolutely. discovered? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's the only way you do this. Right. So you, what did you, you learn? I, I learned the same thing I've learned from many years of doing this is that you... You must go and visit. Yeah. Um, you must uh, have uh, the kind of relationship of trust and openness. You must expect that it, it will not be what you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that they are under incredible pressure. Mm -hmm. um, but that there's genius there, mm -hmm. especially um, with... Um, ways of, of uh, knowing and learning um, how to take care of the earth in particular and, and often how to take care of each other without romanticizing it, that there is really a, a body of practice and uh, cultural um, strength that you don't have to dig very deep. It's right there. It's a very different scene outside the U.S., which is where we work, than it is inside the U.S. And I have worked inside in Native America previous to this job. Um, and I don't, there's some things I could tell you why I think the differences are so great, but there's a lot more solidarity and connectedness in the international movement. And some of it is around the U.N. Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which took about 38 years to have uh, uh, what do I want to call it, ratified, but there, there's no enforcement even of that, mm -hmm. um, that document. And what they've done is they've decided, okay, there's no legal enforcement. That doesn't mean that we're not going to do something with it. So they've been doing education for uh, international attorneys, for heads of state, for doctors, uh, for um, people who are in governmental agencies all over to teach them about free, prior, and informed consent, uh, which is a, um, a phrase that if you look at um, it one word at a time, free, the community is free to be involved or not to be involved. Um, informed. They must be completely informed, not superficially informed. They have to be um, able to uh, have prior um, knowledge rather than just be surprised and expected to have it be 
okay, you make your decision on whether this is okay today. And then consent, uh, it, it started out being, um, what was the other word? It was um, consulted, um, to, that they needed to be consulted. Well, that, that left a lot of room for there to be uh, someone who came in and said, you know, Michael, I'm going to tell you about X and then leave. It didn't mean that there was consent and you could check off the list, yes, we consulted. So these four words and this policy has changed the international scene for indigenous territories and people who are under siege now more than ever, especially in places like the Amazon, mm. um, where uh, the huge dams and the, and the deforestation have um, terrible consequences for the whole earth. And those are our, um, our, our hope, our, our, the people who are holding um, perhaps the fate of the earth in many ways in their, in their uh, activism. So the Environmental Defenders Collaborative is a, um, a group of 14 foundations now joining together to support people who are um, being threatened who are being maimed and killed and run off their land. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's, it's a small extraordinary expression. Work. It is extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our friend Mark Dowie is sitting here, and I, my last conversation was with him about the Haida Gawai. And as you listen to our friend Joan talk about her work, um, what would you add about Joan's contribution to this field? Oh, Michael, field? don't do that. <laughs> I just did it. I know. I mean, well, you and I know, I think, the world of her and everything that she's done for the last 40 years mm -hmm. and uh, or more. But um, I have nothing to add to what she just said about um, um, indigenous people. She understands the situation way better than I do, mm -hmm. much more exposed to it. Um, I have spent quite a bit of my life out there in indigenous communities, and um, I've learned uh, pretty much what she's telling you about it. Um, I do believe that there are actually right now, aside from the people who are working, organizing around the UN, there are about 300 lawyers in the world who are committed to litigating on behalf of uh, Native people um, in different communities. There are about 2,500 communities in the world right now that are in one way or another struggling for sovereignty and title and um, self-determination. And there are a lot of very committed lawyers who are basically working pro bono, getting some grant money to uh, help them do it. And to me, that's where the future is. It's, um, it, it, it has to be legal and it has to be fought. Thank you. Well, and as Michael was saying earlier about the, the global south trying to come north, I think also we must not forget that the far north is melting. Mm. Uh, and we are working with many communities now who are needing to move. Mm -hmm. Whole communities needing to actually pick up their homes to go where they're not sure they don't have money. There's no one offering them land, but their home places are not only sinking uh, with the water rise. There are gases coming out of the earth that have never before come out of the earth because the deep freeze has melted as well. So it poisons people. I would actually modify Michael's scenario a little bit. I, I don't see it as south to north. I see it as equatorial region, both south and north. Mm -hmm. 
the southern cone of South America right now is experiencing what we're experiencing. Southern Africa is getting migration from the from the sub-Saharan sub-Saharan Africa is getting from the Sahara. Um, Australia, New Zealand are getting migrants. Uh, um, they weren't expecting it. So it's, it's equatorial region moving north and south. That's a, a wonderful correction, and I need to change my language about that. Thank you. Your yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear from at least one of Jean's longtime friends who's here. Who would like to say a word about your experience of knowing Jean for a long time? Somebody who's known him for long You want me to say Yeah. Say your name, please. Um, my name is Andrea Jacoby. Yeah. Um, Jean and I used to commute <laughs> to our Wednesday night seminars when she lived in San Francisco. I would pick her up, and we called it the Dharma bus. Hmm. And on the way there and on the way back, we would be talking about what we'd heard from Norman. It was a very... Um, it was a rich experience because um, you could process what we had just learned. And um, I think that really cemented our relationship was um, becoming Dharma sisters in that way. Mm. Um, so, uh, and uh, the Buddha said that the most important thing was to have spiritual friends. Mm -hmm. So... I feel very fortunate yeah. that we've been spiritual friends. Mm. Thank you. Bob, do you want to add anything? I've heard your HIV stories. and they, You're a physician. I'm a physician. Um, involved with, uh, I've been involved with HIV and other things in San Francisco. Um, Sean's stories about connection with the people that had HIV at the very beginning and their families are stunning, um, um, exemplary. Mm. Our ability to connect and follow through and love. Quite mm. stunning. You're listening to a TNS conversation with John Evans and host Michael Lerner. And who is somebody who's been in Joan's Sangha in Point Reyes for a while and knows her in that relationship? I have. It's uh, what I would say about it is that um, the opportunity for intimacy has been. A rollicking success in Point Reyes. Um, we were already a pretty a community that likes to meet on that level, and uh, the way we've formed as a group just, I'm scared how many people are going to be attracted to it in the long run. But I'm not mm. very scared because as it has grown, it doesn't seem to be becoming less intimate, which mm. is. Very lovely. Mm. Mm. Thanks. A couple of other comments or questions from people who've known Joan. Yeah. When is your memoir coming out? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Soon. You, you've written it. I have written it, and Wonderful. I just have to put it together. Mm. Wonderful. I look mm. forward to it. Do you have a title yet? Mm -mm. 
others? Kate, you have any reflections? Mm. I, uh, you know, I, there are lots of things I could say about myself and my relationship to John, but I think uh, probably the, um, the hallmark is that is her uh, that that I am so touched by her ability to hold what she talked about today, both uh, the um, the witnessing of pain and the experiencing of pain, and the. Uh, the fragility but uh, and the enduring fragility of uh, joy and fun and hope and love and uh, so I, I John brings both to whatever <coughs> wherever she is today and, uh, at dinner or the sangha and uh, and then oh oh mm-hmm. A willingness uh, to share that vulnerability mm. um, with me, with us. So I'm very, very grateful. Orin, you've been friends with Joan for a long time, and oh. as we've said, she recommended you to come to Commonweal and be our executive director. What reflections do you have? It hasn't been that long. It's been five years. Yeah. Um, so it feels like it's a, a deep knowing that goes um, a lot beyond. And, you know, when you get to know someone to a slice, to me, Jean is someone we talk about art and, <laughs> and many other things, and her Zen practice was actually not core to our relationship. So it's fascinating to hear all that, and I'm sitting here wondering how... It's almost a question. It's like as you travel among different communities that are not Zen communities, all the indigenous cultures, including in Central Asia, how does the, that practice um, become evident in those relationships in places that are not in the Southern background? Well, that is a question that is asked um, often in the team I work with. Um, and it is uh, about continuing to try and say uh, yes and to be generous. It's easy to close down, mm-hmm. especially when you're asked all the time mm-hmm. for something. Uh, and when it has to do with money, it gets very tricky. Um, you know, you have to remember that uh, though it's tempting to um, to think that we are better off because we're not asking for the money. Um, in fact, you know, we all have the need for money and the need for feeling safe and for taking care of our families. Um, and I've been incredibly privileged um, I, I feel that privilege more and more the uh, older I get, knowing that um, there are many people who at this stage have uh, a lot more worries than I do. And I see that the, 
the resources, the money and other things that we've all thought perhaps were guaranteed um, in our lives, education, um, uh, you know, a, a safe neighborhood, um, um, fresh water coming out of the tap, all that. Um, it's all it's all changing, and uh, and if you can remember that um, you don't really know what's going on really with somebody, mm-hmm. and if you can remember to be humble and uh, open, keep opening, be generous. That seems to be the way to continue to do this work. You guys do it here all the time. Tell us about the uh, robe that you've been stitching by hand. (laughs) The robe that I've been stitching by hand. I have friends here, particularly Andrea, who has helped me quite a lot. She's a wonderful sewer. I am not. Um, I have told people that when my sewing teacher, who's at the San Francisco Zen Center, um, sees what I bring in um, week after week, she looks at the stitches and says, oh, you're getting so much better, John. And I say, those are Andrea's stitches. <laughs> They're not mine. You know, Mine are really bad. Um, I, I flunked apron in the, um, in the home ec classes that we took. I did. I got an F on my apron. Um, I was good in the shop, but I was not good in the in the uh, sewing thing. Uh, it's been a wonderful practice. I love it, and I'm going to wear my robe with all my mistakes um, for many years to come. Now, but tell people what it's about. Well, it's a it's a meditative um, practice of sewing um, your own robe, the same kind of robe that the Buddha wore, out of scraps of cloth which originally came from um, searching through charnel grounds and taking the, uh, the clothing off of um, bodies. Uh, monks uh, then stitched those um, to cover themselves. At some point, um, King Ashoka, I believe, um, asked the Buddha to um, design robes or some sort of clothing that would distinguish the Buddhist monks from the other wandering ascetics. And the Buddha said, no, you know, I don't really think we want to make them special. And the king uh, asked him again and again. And finally, one day, the Buddha was walking with his wonderful assistant, Ananda. And they came to the top of a hill and looked out over the rice fields of India was probably Nepal, India, um, these days. And he was so, Buddha was so impressed by how beautiful the rice fields were that he said, let's make them look like this. Let's make them look like rice fields. We'll make these little mini sort of robes, and that's what now you see around a, a, a Buddhist priest's neck uh, is a small uh, representation of the larger robe. That looks very much like what a rice field looks like. Beautiful and simple and a kind of natural form that seems very much like who I think the Buddha must have been. So the deal is, as I understand, that in order to take 
Shiho, the full transmission mm -hmm. and authorization from Norman Fisher, um, part of the ceremony is that you have to stitch this robe, right? It, it is. And that there are said to be 5,000 stitches in the robe. And that, as you said, you're a terrible sewer stitcher. <laughs> and there are probably 4,000 terrible stitches in it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there are a thousand beautiful ones that my friends have done. <laughs> Is there anything I haven't asked you that, oh, no. as a last uh, reflection, you'd like to add, or simply a last mm -hmm. reflection to leave us with? Um, I want to um, remember my parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, who really did their best and who lived uh, with a lot of pain and suffering and uh, obviously loved me a lot, though I couldn't always appreciate that while they were alive. Uh, and to... Uh, to say that somehow I feel that there's a um, a way in which we are all challenged to um, to go deep into ourselves to see uh, the Buddha and bring the Buddha forth, and that. Sometimes, as you said earlier, Michael, illness and wounds and great difficulties uh, are what brings that mm -hmm. forward through the cracks mm -hmm. uh, to bring out the light and bring in the light. Um, and that I'm grateful to not have to make it perfect. Mm -hmm. Just be whoever I am. Thank do you, you. Do you have either one of your poems or a fragment of one of your poems that you could leave us with? Mm. Um, I am that woolly auburn cub doing the one sock dance in the garden of autumn. See me turn turn and turn, inside out, disappear. Joan Evans, poet, visual artist, Buddhist priest, and laborer in the fields, the difficult fields of philanthropic work. Um, and above all, beloved friend to so many of us in your family of choice. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with John Evans and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. 
Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.